Well, good morning. So good to be here and uh, to join you. It was an honor for Steve to ask me um, to come and then to um, to give my heart message. He said, um, um, Northview really hasn't had uh, your take on the kingdom message, so would you come and and do that for us. So for four weeks here uh, today and then the next three Sundays, uh, we're going to be walking through the kingdom message of Jesus and its implications for us today. Let me tell you a little bit about my relationship with Steve, but before I do, I want to introduce my wife, Charm, would you stand? And her mom, Bobby Joe. Um, Bobby Joe is 92, 93, 93. She just turned 93. Uh, it seems like you're a lot younger than that. But <laughs> um, Charm has been my companion and uh, team member for um, over 50 years, 52 years. Um, and we have just had a tremendous run together. But she's um, a lot of the explanation for uh, what God has done in, in our lives together in leadership. We met Steve. You remember that charm? Um, he probably became noticed when we had a Sunday evening service testimony time. He, I think it was his first Sunday. And he stood up during testimony time and he said, Pastor Jan... That was a hell of a good sermon. <laughs> he had no idea that was not appropriate, you know, in a Baptist church. So he was pretty rough in those days. He had just come to Christ. And after meeting him, I realized that the Spirit of God was really at work in his life. And so I, I offered to disciple him. And he jumped at that, and so we, made, we met at uh, Mama Teresa's Pancake House weekly for I don't know how many months. And uh, he, he was like trying to uh, control um, a missile without a handset, you know. Um, I mean, if you had a drone and you could control it with a handset, that'd be one thing. But with Steve... It was just blast off and then try to get ahead of him and keep him going. Um, he read through the New Testament in like the first month after he became a Christian. He read through the Bible in the first couple months. And then he started rereading and rereading and rereading. And he couldn't understand why every Christian hadn't read the Bible. He went to the singles group at, at Bethel Baptist Church where we were in Green Bay and, and he asked the question, so how many of you have read the New Testament? And there was one or two hands. And these were all church kids who'd grown up in the church, in Christian families. And he was stunned. He came to me the next day. He said, Jan, do you realize that you are pastoring a bunch of illiterate people? <laughs> They have never read the manual. And uh, he's only a few months old in the Lord at the time. Well, that is the kind of guy I was looking for um, when we were called by God to come out to Bothell. I asked Steve if he'd go with us. And uh, I had heard that they were thinking about hiring an SPU student to uh, be part-time youth pastor, uh, although they didn't have any money for it. And uh, we probably had 125 people. Well, actually, we had 225 people the first Sunday I was here. And, and I preached my way down to 125. <laughs> and so Steve stayed in uh, a family's basement. And he was given an old van, uh, an old yellow uh, Chevy van, or Ford van, I think it was. But... Um, the rest is history because as he volunteered and I tried to help him, he'd never been to a youth group. He had no idea. He was a Catholic boy. They don't have youth groups, at least not in Green Bay. And uh, he, he had no idea. So I had to train him in terms of how to run a youth group, what to do with the youth. He had seven kids to start with. And eventually um, he 
supervised um, up to 400 junior high and senior high youth uh, over the years. Um, it grew and grew and grew. So we worked together for 25 years at North Shore, and then we started planting churches. Um, Dan and Jamie Rupp were uh, our second church, daughter church um, planters, and they planted Northview at uh, one of the high schools here, I think Jackson High School. Some of you may have been around at that time. And uh, when they left, Steve put his hat in the ring and was uh, selected as the the new senior pastor. And uh, that was before this building. That was when this building was an impossibility. I mean, I walked through this with Steve when it was just concrete walls. Nothing was here. And we were dreaming and we were praying. And... God has done a marvelous, marvelous work, and the congregation has grown, and uh, you've got oodles and oodles of kids and and youth, and uh, it's really precious. It's wonderful. Steve asked me to, as I said, share my version of the gospel of the kingdom, and uh, he was part of a lot of the development of these ideas. He has his own way of expressing it and teaching it. Um, I would call it a Mitchellistic way of teaching it. <laughs> and uh, he, he and several other staff people helped me in the writing of a book called Follow Me, which was published by NAV Press back in 1996. And uh, that book has been republished now as The Safe King. And that you'll see that on the cover of the bulletin. And there are copies of the newly revised new look uh, book out there in the lobby and I'd encourage you to pick one up. There's also a study guide if you have a small group meeting in your home or you'd like to take your family through it. Once you get a taste of it this morning, you can decide for yourself. And then my latest book called Still Restless, Conversations That Open the Door to Peace um, is out there as well. There's a free brochure which has a succinct Explanation of the kingdom message, the kingdom gospel of Jesus. And that's free out there as well. The books are $10 each. Um, that's $6 off the cover price. And uh, it's good or better than you're going to get uh, at Amazon or one of the wholesale places. Um, study guides are $3. So that's the commercials. Let's uh, take, your, take our Bibles and uh, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We're going to talk today about what the gospel is and what it isn't. Uh, what Jesus said it was, what Paul said it was, and then we're going to examine what our culture, our Christian culture, has decided it is and isn't. So let's start with Acts chapter 20. Paul, the apostle, is at the end of his ministry. He's about to be put under... Um, arrest and sent to Rome. He knows that's coming. And so uh, starting with verse 20 of chapter 20, um, and by the way, you can use your device if you've got a phone or an iPad with you. Um, just don't check your email, all right? You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you public, publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance and faith are part of what Paul taught over the years as uh, he planted churches. Look at uh, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul is the one who coined the word grace and the idea that the gospel is about God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So grace, not works, um, was really big in Paul's message. But, Let's look at the next verse. But now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. 
Um, this may sound strange to you. Most people don't understand that Paul's message was the gospel of the kingdom. And here he says, I preach repentance, I preach faith, I preach grace, and I preach the kingdom. Those are my four ingredients. Look at the last chapter of the book of Acts, would you? Chapter 28. And I want you to see, Paul is under house arrest. He's chained to a praetorian guard waiting for his personal trial before Caesar. He will soon be martyred. But he waits for about two years, and this is what he was doing. They gave him permission to have people come into his rented house. And um, verse, let's go to verse 23. They arranged, this is people, people arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and, declare, and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Of course, that's the Old Testament, and that's all they had. That was their Bible at that time. The New Testament had not yet been developed. I'll drop down to verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the gospel, or he preached the kingdom of God and taught them about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the last we see of Paul, he's still doing what he had done all along, and that is preach the kingdom gospel, the kingdom message of Jesus. And we're going to look at um, what Jesus actually said was the gospel. Next. All right? But let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we open ourselves up right now to your Spirit. We ask that you would speak strongly and clearly and help us understand why your gospel is structured and worded the way it is. May it have strong impact on our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit freely move upon us in this hour. And may the actual words of Scripture of, of Jesus thrill us, and challenge us, and change us. And Lord, we want to remember the VBS ministry this week. 85 plus kids, a wonderful team of workers, and the opportunity for children to hear the gospel, to hear about Jesus, to hear about his salvation. And I pray that there will be kids who actually are genuinely saved this week. I remember when I was six years old, when I responded to the gospel when you changed my heart and began, uh, began a new trajectory for me. And I pray that that will happen with many of the kids that come this week. May it be overshadowed by your Spirit. May there be power in everything. May it be fun, but may it also be potent. May your will be done in this VBS. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to talk about the, the leadership issue of the gospel. And um, let me just ask this. Do you understand that the gospel is very, very political? If you, if you don't like the idea that politics and the church or politics and the message of the scripture are connected, um, you don't understand What's really going on? Politics is always about leadership and control. One of the, the questions in the last couple of years has been, who can you trust, right? So we had this terrible dilemma as a country. Do we vote for Hillary or do we vote for Donald? Is this going to be another Clinton leadership team or is this going to be the Trump leadership team, right? 
Is that okay to say that in church? Of course it is. All right, so the question is, who do you trust? And we're going, whoa, this is a tough question. I don't know who to trust. And in fact, that issue has still not been resolved. Um, how do you trust people who do weird things and say really strange things? And, ah, the question is, how do you find a leader you can trust? Because every leader seems to be about their own agenda. So isn't it better to stay in control yourself and not trust anybody except yourself? Whoa, you really trust yourself? You're amazing. Or stupid. Because by now you should know that you're quite capable of making the same kinds of blunders that human leaders make. Same kind of selfishness that they exercise. You can do it too. And do. Often too. Let's, do, let's dive into the actual gospel of Jesus. The, the picture that's on the screen is, is a picture of the human heart. But it's also, it's more than the heart. It's the way we guard our lives. These encastled hearts. The, these stone faces are a picture of what it is that's going on with us. We have this terrible problem of wanting our own way and resisting anybody telling us what to do. Don't try to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I think is best for me. Isn't that the spirit of the age? As soon as you try to tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong... You are a bigot. You're an intolerant bigot. You're probably a racist and a xenophobe, too. And a homophobe. And blah, 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 blah. As soon as you have any kind of structure to your life, you're regarded as the problem. Because the culture wants absolute freedom to do whatever they want. Whenever they want to do it. And that's the nature of the human heart. So, this issue of the stone-faced, of the castled heart, is the issue. It always has been. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been going on since the creation of the world and the fall of Adam and Eve. That is why the message of Jesus is structured the way it is. Jesus is deliberately going after this issue. Now, this is a a picture of sin. This is not a picture of mistakes or weak humans being human in our culture, means being weak. I'm only human. Don't expect too much from me. All right? This picture is a picture of the core issue of what has happened to us as a human race and each of us as individuals. We have gone our own way, we do our own thing, and we build barriers around ourselves to protect us from anybody else being able to control or speak into our lives. And there is the way the message starts in Scripture. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. In other words, he comes ahead of Jesus to prepare the ground, to till the ground. And he does so dramatically and he does so successfully. Thousands and thousands of people went out into the desert to hear John the Baptist preach. Now, you, you, if you're a slouch, if you're a goof, you see where Steve got some of his words? Um, you, you're not going to get thousands of people out in the desert. People, it was hot. 
out there. There's scorpions out there. There's no water out there. You've got to walk out there in those days. So for thousands of people to go out to the Jordan from Jerusalem, that's quite a walk. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you understand the geography. It's not a terrible long ways, but it's probably overnight. And you go out into the desert and you meet this, this crazy guy clothed in camel's hair who eats locusts and wild honey, but is the most amazing preacher they've ever heard. And thousands of them are baptized by John in the Jordan River. Eventually, Jesus himself is baptized by John in the Jordan River. John was a remarkable communicator. He was a storyteller. He was a firebrand. He was passionate. But the Holy Spirit, taking all of his rhetoric, boiling it down to a single phrase, says this is what John was preaching. This is the summary In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He said a lot more than that. (laughs) A whole lot more. He wasn't the the sandwich board prophet on the sidewalk, you know, repent or perish. He was an articulate communicator. Very effective. But when the Holy Spirit chooses to bring it all down to one statement, This is what the Holy Spirit says John was preaching. Now, take a look at what happened as soon as John was put in prison. Of course, he was put in prison by Herod, and then he was martyred. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel. Good news and the gospel are synonymous. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Is there any difference? between the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus? Absolutely none. Again, Jesus, the master teacher, the fantastic storyteller. That's why we have the gorgeous parables in the Gospels. We have samples of his sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Prophetic Mount later on. In the book of Matthew, we've we've got all of those places where he speaks into a situation. And he does so, so brilliantly. It's so cool to watch him communicate. But when the Holy Spirit says this is his message and boils it all down, this is what the Holy Spirit says Jesus was saying. In all of the stories, in all of the sermons, in all of the teaching, This is what he was saying. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if this this just occurred one time or two times in the Gospels, we can say, well, that's interesting. But listen to me. The writers, the four Gospel writers, never put it any other way. This is the way the Holy Spirit says it over and over and over again, dozens of times. I'm only only giving you a a synopsis here. Matthew 4.17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. What did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4.23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. What was he preaching? The kingdom is here. Repent. But Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that's why I was sent. I'm here to preach the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm not going to bore you to death by going through every single passage on this, but read the New Testament again. Read the Gospels over again with fresh eyes. Look for the kingdom, and you'll be finding it on every page. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Father, 
Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your reign, your leadership come in my world as it is in heaven. That's a salvation prayer, friends. That's not a religious prayer just for liturgical churches. That's what God is looking for in the human heart. So, now he's training his, his 12 disciples. He's chosen 12 to be with him in an inner circle kind of relationship and he's, he's mentoring them. So, he sends them out and they went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing the people everywhere. Now, was it the same gospel? Mark 6, 12. And the twelve went out and preached that people should repent. Yeah. It was. And then, Matthew 24 is that other Sermon on the Mount I mentioned. And this is Christ's prophetic sermon. And he's telling them about the last days and what they should expect and what was coming. And he says this, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Now some of you may have had a background in Christian churches or teaching where something called dispensationalism has evolved or been part of the teaching. And dispensationalists basically have tried to divide the scripture up much more than they should have. So they, they say, well, Matthew and parts of Mark and Luke are really written for the Jews. And Jesus is offering himself as the king to the Jews. And when the Jews rejected Jesus, then the gospel changed to the gospel of grace. And the kingdom dropped out. Well, somebody should have told the apostle Paul. We just read that at the end of his life, after a whole ministry of starting churches all over Asia Minor and all around the, the, the Mediterranean and North Africa and all over the place, he's still preaching the kingdom. Um, I think they're wrong, very wrong, because the issue of the kingdom is the issue of every human heart, not just the Jews. The issue of who's in control. The issue of who's reigning within. Who's on the throne of the heart. Is a universal problem. And that is what Jesus was getting after. The gospel today, going out into all the world, isn't necessarily the gospel of Jesus, by the way. The popular gospel today in, evangelical, in the evangelical world and what we often take to the mission field is the gospel, I would call it a welfare gospel. It's, it's removing all the uh, possible reaction because you see, when, when I ask you, would you surrender the control of your life to Jesus Christ? Whoa! That is provocative. That's a political attack. You're saying that my control of my life isn't good enough. I'll fight you over that. You get the same kind of reaction with the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus got, which was crucify him. We will not give up our kingdoms. So we know that about each other and we know that about ourselves. And so what we do is we eliminate that. We take it out. We don't talk about kingdoms. In fact, we don't talk about God's reign coming. We talk about God's goodness and God's mercy and God's kindness and God's love. Right? And we say the gospel is a free gift. Now, why would you want to argue with that? Isn't that wonderful? You can be forgiven and you can go to heaven and it's all free. 
And Jesus never put it that way. And neither did Paul. He said, well, Paul was the gospel of... He was the apostle of grace. He was. But he never... You saw the ingredients. Repentance, faith, grace, and the kingdom. He did have an extra revelation of grace. But remember what he was fighting. And that is Judaism. In other words, Jews were trying to get the Christians to accept the whole Old Testament system as well as Jesus. So that was what he was pushing back against with the grace message is saying, no, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not about your good deeds and keeping the law. It's about the work of Jesus. But he never let off the gas pedal when it came to the leadership issue. Here's Jesus discussing this whole thing with Pilate. This was an intellectual discussion, although I'm not sure Pilate was seriously into it. Am I a Jew? Paul, uh, Pilate replied, It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. This is the issue. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You're a king, then? Pilate's sarcasm is dripping. And Jesus answered, You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth of my identity as the king. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So what have we done in our modern era um, with marketing? You can get a PhD in it. You know, you can you massage the message to, to get down to the emotional level so that people are triggered to buy, Right? So we get these expert people now taking the gospel and saying, okay, how should we best market the message of the gospel? And we take upon ourselves this audacious task, and audacious in that we should have never assumed we know more than Jesus or that we're better at this than Jesus. But we do. I have a PhD in marketing. I'm an expert. Um, I have a portfolio. I have sold refrigerators to Eskimos. Uh, I, I can do this. All right? We take the gospel and we massage it. And uh, in our egoism, in our self-enthronement, because for many Christians that is still very much in place, we assume that we can take the message and morph it to better fit our generation. And so we say things like, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but by the gospel we mean the pop gospel, the free gift gospel. All right? Accept the gift of God's grace. Receive God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Commit your life to Christ. Make a decision for Christ. Pray the sinner's prayer. All right, all of that sounds familiar. I mean, this is if you've been in our kind of church for any length of time, this is evangelical speak. This is the way we do it. Let's keep going. Let Jesus come into your heart. We usually use that with younger people, children. Put your trust in Christ as your Savior. Place your, your trust in the finished work of the cross. And we make much of the cross, which we should. The cross is the, the portal. It's the door that Jesus created into the kingdom. Raise your hand during an invitation. Come forward to the front of the auditorium. Pray to accept Christ with a counselor. That's the whole mass evangelism approach. Billy Graham, Luis Palau on and on and on, evangelists all around the world who have had stadium events ask people to walk the aisle, meet with a counselor, pray a prayer, right? 
I was raised with this. And then we've used this. Be born again by accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. The strangest thing about that is there's never a mention in the New Testament about accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. You can justify believing that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes. But accepting Jesus as your personal Savior... Like your personal trainer or life coach? That's just not there. It's not in the Bible. So what's missing in all of that jargon that we use? Anybody? What's missing? The kingdom and repentance. Why did we drop that out? Because it's inconvenient. It makes it harder to communicate. A free gift is just so much easier. Even though Jesus never used that language. And never called it part of his gospel. Let's talk about this. The the kingdom gospel of Jesus assumes an accurate diagnosis of what's wrong. If you went to the the doctor uh, this week because um, you've had a pain in your chest and you've had some shortness of breath and your left arm has been aching, you know enough about heart disease to know something's probably wrong. Either, Either have a blocked artery or I have emphysema. But when you go to the doctor and you have these symptoms, which you know are pretty serious from listening to other people, you do not expect the doctor to say, oh, (laughs) uh, I got some good news for you. Uh, Go home, take an aspirin, take a nap, you'll be fine. You'd think to yourself, what a quack. I'm here because I know I have a serious problem. I expect to be taken seriously. I want to know the truth. I I want a prognosis, a solution that fits a very serious problem. I know I have a serious problem. I mean, you could use cancer uh, as an illustration as well. You want the doctor to take you seriously. You want him to test you. You want him to get to the bottom of it. And you want the bad news. If you're really sick, if you really got a problem, if you really are, have cancer or heart disease or something serious like that, you don't want the doctor blowing it off. You want him to tell you the truth. This is the problem because you want a prognosis. You, you want a solution that matches the problem, right? That's exactly how Jesus approached this. He clarifies the problem and then he offers a solution big enough to handle the problem. So let's take a look at this. The bad news um, is always critical to the good news. So God's diagnosis of our problem is one of the reasons why we avoid reading the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to raise your hands, but I know most of the people in this room have never read through the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's hard sledding. It's tough going. It's ad nauseum. It's God's definition of sin. We're going to look at it in just a minute. But what it does is it sets up the reality of God's kingdom versus the kingdom of evil or of darkness. God's kingdom is where one, one will rules, where God is God. Lucifer rebelled against that and led a bunch of angels to follow him, and they are the ones that established the kingdom of darkness. It didn't exist before their rebellion. Then they enticed... Adam and Eve, to follow them into their rebellion. And so Adam and Eve jump into the kingdom of darkness, but with a caveat. 
No way are we going to be letting, are we going to exchange God for Satan? We're going to run our own kingdoms in the kingdom of darkness. And that's the human story. Whether it's our individual lives, or our families, or our tribes, or our races, or our nationalities, we all try to run our own kingdom, not let somebody else take over. So, here's a world out from under God's kingdom. Here's the kingdom of darkness. It has two parts. There's the kingdom of fallen angels. There's a spiritual element to it. The Bible calls these beings that are disembodied, that are in the spirit world, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, and demons. There's quite a force of them. Satan probably has, you've probably never experienced a direct temptation from Satan. He's not like God. He's not omnipresent. He can't be in the same place, in, in two different places at the same time. I don't know if you knew that. But if he's tempting uh, and working on President Trump, which he probably is, he's probably not directly involved in your life. But he has many, many helpers. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, and demons who do his bidding, and you have had your brush with spiritual evil, with demonic evil but probably not directly with Satan himself. That's a little theology just thrown in free. Um, <laughs> kingdoms of the world. Now this is the nations of the world. They figure big in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the nations and how they are in opposition to God. In, in the future, in the book of Revelation, it's all about the nations rising up against God's anointed one, against the Lamb, against the returning Christ. And in fact, after Jesus conquers the world in a final sense, the nations still exist. I don't know if you ever noticed that. In the last chapter of the book of Revelation, the nations are coming into the New Jerusalem, bringing their splendor into the New Jerusalem. Get that. They still exist. But now they are under his leadership and his control. So I've got a, you know, a smattering of nations here um, just representing all the nations on the earth. By the way, there's not a single Christian nation on the planet. There are some Christian leaders, but by and large the nations exist in opposition to the kingdom of God. So let's take this right back to uh, the personal level, to the home. Here's why the home... Uh, everybody's home, basically, is dysfunctional. It's because of this kingdom issue. Um, Dad has his own personal kingdom. He marries a woman who is strong-willed and has her own kingdom. Nobody's going to tell her what to do, not even the love of her life. And in fact, as soon as she feels the encroachment of his will on hers, she gets very hostile. And he, in turn, gets hostile back. At the center of husband-wife conflict are always control issues. Always. That's why money is such a big issue in marriages. Because it's about control of the money. Who's going to say who spends what and how much and when and on what? That's why it's a big deal. It's a control issue. And we could go on and on and on about that. But then they have a son, and uh, he's so sweet and such a wonderful kid. And everybody loves him. And about age two, he starts letting everybody know that he has a will of his own. We call it the terrible twos. Um, but he's testing all the boundaries, all of them. And then he hits 12 and 13 and 14. And now he's really kicking at the boundaries. His identity is forming. He's finding out that he is an individual with a will of his own and somebody to be... He's a contender. Somebody to be taken seriously. 
And uh, so there's tension as dad and mom try to handle his rebellion and, and his problems with authority and his control issues, right? And then his sister, or his grandma moves in rather, and grandma uh, never did like her son-in-law. And so you've got this tension added to the tension between dad and mom and mom and son and dad and son. And, and then there's a baby sister, and baby sister doesn't care what other people think. She wants to be changed when she wants to be changed. She wants to be fed when she wants to be fed. She's totally self-absorbed and self-centered. She has no patience at all with whether you're getting sleep or not. Doesn't even cross her mind. All right? And there's a daughter, and between the son and the daughter, a, a sibling rivalry develops, again, over control issues. And there's a dog, and the dog is cantankerous. And I mean, we're talking about a dysfunctional family, right? But each individual has their own little kingdom. And that's the point that I'm trying to make, is that Jesus, coming with his message, addresses the fact that we are all independent, autonomous, self-centered people. So the misaligned heart looks like this. The kingdom of self in control means I am not under God's government by birth. I am on my own. I, like Adam and Eve, have declared my independence. I have rejected God's authority. I am an independent operator. I am an autonomous person. And I consider that freedom. To be in control in our world today and in our culture is always regarded as the definition of freedom. It's not seen as wrong. It's not seen as sin. It's seen as necessary. It's seen as a high and maybe the highest value. And what we don't realize is that is the nature of sin. And what it does is it separates us from God. Sin always separates us. And sin is, at its core, rebellion. Now let's take a look at the Old Testament prophets again. All right, This is just a quickie. I'm going to give you uh, many, many weeks of study in just a moment here. The biblical def definition of sin from the prophet's perspective um, is really complex and yet quite simple. So you've got words like trespass, transgress, obstinance, stubbornness, unrighteousness, wickedness, lawlessness, disobedience, ungodliness, blasphemy, unholiness, iniquity, to act perversely, rejection of authority, refusal to comply, independent self-sufficiency, selfish pride, evil, to twist or deviate. I skipped one, and that is that first, the end of the first column, to miss the mark. For whatever reason, I don't, to this day I don't get it, but Christian theologians have decided that to miss the mark is the definition of sin in the Bible. How in the world did they decide that? It's not repeated more often than the other words. In fact, the other words are repeated more often than to miss the mark. It's because it's the easiest. It's the least threatening. To miss the mark, in other words, it's an archer's term. To aim at a target and miss the mark. If the mark is the perfection and character of God, I don't feel bad about missing that. I never expected to hit that. Right? So there's not a whole lot of guilt involved. In fact, if you try to tell an ungodly, unsaved, life, living life on their own person that to miss the mark is the definition of sin, they laugh at you. So what? What do you expect? I'm only human. Right. So it, is, it does miss the mark, no question. Sin does miss the mark. But all of those are capital S singular words. In other words, they all describe sin as a core issue. Now let's summarize that with three other words. Defiance, rebellion, and self-centeredness, which the prophets said a lot about. All right? 
Now what are we doing? What are we talking about here? We're talking about an authority problem. This is an attitude toward authority, toward leadership, toward God that the prophets are trying to define. Why does it matter? Please keep following me. I know it's almost lunchtime. And uh, please don't think about that yet. Although now I probably... (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, the Bible defines sin as an authority problem or a conflict over the issue of control. That means when Jesus came, what he was saying was this is about my kingdom versus God's kingdom. My personal human kingdom ruling my own life versus God ruling my life. And that's what he was going after. So this is the problem that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was designed to solve. So if you're not saved from developing your own kingdom, the question is, are you saved? If salvation doesn't touch your control issues, are you really a Christian? If you have invited Jesus to be your Savior, but not your leader, you still got all the same issues and all the same problems you had before. You're still self-centered. We call it narcissistic these days. Nice name for it. If you think you've been to the cross and met the Savior, but He hasn't touched your control issues of who's in charge of your life, you're probably mistaken. Please, please, rethink it. There's way too much at stake. Sin is a kingdom problem. And that's why Jesus used the language he did. As a kingdom issue, it inevitably produces animosity, hostility, and conflict toward God. It always does. The crucifixion of Jesus demonstrates how far human beings will go to protect and preserve their own kingdoms. Why did the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees conspire to murder Jesus? He was a threat to their kingdoms. So what is repentance? It's an appropriate response to authority. When you meet God, the one in charge of everything, the leader of the universe, what is the appropriate response? Well, let's talk about that. In Scripture, it's consistently used, repentance is consistently used in connection to the kingdom of God. So, here's God's kingdom coming. Jesus is saying, repent. In other words, here is the leadership of heaven coming to earth in me, the king. What's the appropriate response? Give up. Turn around. Change sides. It means to turn from one kingdom to another or literally to change sides. And I love that because it's a big enough solution to the seriousness of our problem. It's a prognosis that matches the diagnosis. The biblical diagnosis. So here we are. It's the last slide. Let me ask you this personally. Has the stone wall that you've built against God's control of your life ever come down? In other words, are you still trying to control God in control? You you say with one side of your mouth, Oh, Jesus, you sing songs about him being king and, you know, the leader. 
But on the other side, you say, well, wait a minute. Let's not get this, let this get out of hand. Um, uh, I don't want any extremism. I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to be weird. If I totally yielded to Jesus, I wouldn't be able to control what he did. And who knows what he might do. I might have to sell my house and move to the mission field. My kids might go to the mission field. I can't let that happen. I want them around me. I want my grandkids. Isn't that a control issue? Yeah. Isn't that the kind of thing that separates us from God's leadership? Absolutely. Our churches have been a comfortable place to be in control of God being in control. As crazy as that sounds. I'll let God control this. But I have to stay in control of this. And that's a serious problem. Because we still have ramparts. We still have fortresses. The Bible calls them strongholds that keep us from being effective as followers of Jesus. Because we're not following all the time and we're not following all the way. We're following when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, on Sunday morning, when we're singing in worship, when we're hearing the Word, we're following and then we go home and we turn the page and we walk into another category it's all different. Now I have to run my life. Remember what Jesus said? This is the kind of prayer the Father wants to hear. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, in my earth, as it is in heaven. That's what God is after. He's always been after our return to His kingdom. And the work of Jesus, the work of the cross, His death, burial, and resurrection opened a door. That's why He said, I am the door. I'm the gate. I'm the portal into the kingdom. I've reopened access to God's reign. To letting God be God. So when you come to Jesus, as I hope you do, day after day, in a fresh way, come to Him saying, Your will be done in me as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know you've been speaking. I can see it in people's faces and eyes. I, I know that this message connects because it connected when Jesus preached it. It connected when Paul preached it. It still has the same power today. We, we want to say, first of all, Lord, we're sorry that we are so stubbornly committed to our own selfishness, to running our own lives. Lord, I pray that you'll hear our apology and that you'll blow past our stubbornness. And Lord, would you, would you hear the longing and yearning of our hearts? We, we want everything you have for us. We want your kingdom. We don't want just our kingdoms. We don't want the kingdoms of this world. We want the real thing. We want home. Eternal home. We want love. Eternal love. We want safety. Eternal safety. We want comfort and pleasure. Eternal comfort and pleasure. We want it all. And thank you, Jesus, for offering it when you offered us the kingdom. And thank you for dying to make it accessible. And for inviting us in. But Lord, please, please be patient with us because it is so hard for us to really let you be God. To let you be king. To let you have it all. But that's what we're doing this morning. We're here in true worship. We're here honoring your word. We're here taking your message seriously. 
And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would drive it home deep, deeper than ever before, and Lord, change us. We're so dysfunctional in our control issues and our selfishness. Clean that out of us. Make new creations of us in your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.